Let me remind you to keep your hymnals open, and if you would also uh, note on your order of worship, don't close that, because under there the sermon title and the texts are is an outline, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to be following that, and we'll read uh, our texts from the Bible in that order. So if you'll keep those open, uh, your your order of worship open, I'd be grateful. Last week, I began this three-week series, Why I Believe What I Believe, and last week, I began with Why I Believe in God. I concentrated on that phrase, the starry sky above me and the, the moral law within me. We talked about the expansive, wonderful creation of God and the fact that there had to have been a divine designer. We talked about the moral law within us, God's standards written on our hearts and in our consciences. Uh, today I'm going to talk about why I'm a Christian, so I'm sort of narrowing, funneling down, if you will, why I, why I believe in God, why I'm a Christian, and next week, why I'm a First Baptist Huntsville kind of Christian. But today we're at uh, why I'm a Christian. So last week I said I believe in God, but saying that, I still have lots of options in terms of uh, religions. So why am I a Christian? Why am I not a, a Buddhist or Hindu or Sikh or Muslim? Why am I not in that growing number of people who say, I believe in God, I'm a spiritual person, I, I just don't want to be affiliated with any particular organized uh, religion. Why, why wouldn't I join uh, that group? Why am I a Christian? After all, Christians have not always gotten things right. Through the years, Christians, in fact, have gotten a good deal wrong. During the Middle Ages, for example, Christians killed other Christians in what we call the Inquisition because they disagreed. And also in the Middle Ages, Christians, in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, brutally murdered Muslims, not always on the battlefield, sometimes in just, just horrific kinds of ways. Often, Christians have defended racism and ignored poverty. Often Christians have been hypocritical and judgmental, and, and often we still are. Christian leaders have acted selfishly, have even acted abusively. It's, it's just been so upsetting recently to see the stories of, of Christian leaders who have abused children and women. Sometimes the, the spokespersons of the Christian faith don't, don't represent at least me well, and sometimes I'm even a little bit embarrassed by the people that the media chooses to be our, our spokespersons. On the other hand, through the years, Christians have gotten a lot right. Although it is true that lots of Christians tried to defend slavery, it's true that, that Christians were behind the movement to abolish uh, slavery. Over the globe, countless hospitals, orphanage, lep uh, orphanages, leper clinics have begun, been begun by Christians, and countless schools, universities begun by Christians. Christian missionaries all over the world have taught not only spiritual transformation, but have taught the dignity, the worth of, of every individual. And, and lots of political scientists and historians give missionaries the credit for the rise of democracy around the world. So on the one hand, Christians haven't done enough bad things to drive me away. After all, we are all humans. And on the other hand, Christians haven't done enough good things to draw me in because after all, lots of good organizations have done lots of good things. 
So why am I a Christian? It boils down, I believe, to me for, uh, it boils down to three words. Incarnation, resurrection, and redemption. So I'm going to talk about those three words this morning. Incarnation, resurrection, and redemption. First, incarnation. In John 1, follow along as I read, Jesus, the embodiment of God the Son, is referred to as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christians believe there's one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And we believe that there is one God. And yet, we believe that mysterious truth that in God there are three. We call that the Trinity, this mysterious truth that, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Spirit is God, that, that God is one, and yet there are three who are God, that in theological terms, they are one in their essence or being and yet distinguishable as persons. And at the heart of the Christian faith is our belief that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became incarnate in the person of Jesus. Incarnation, the, that the second syllable of incarnation, carn, uh, comes from the Latin for flesh in the Spanish language. Carne means me. The incarnation of God the Son is the enfleshment, the embodiment of God the Son in the person of Jesus. We believe that without giving up his divinity or his godness, he took upon himself our humanity, our humanness, and became the God-man. Now, if that's true, it changes everything. John Hick was a, a British philosopher of religion who believed that Jesus was a great teacher, a, a, a wonderful philosopher, a sage, but he didn't believe that, uh, that he was the incarnation, the embodiment, the enfleshment of God. He did say, though, John Hick said, and, and let me quote him accurately, if Jesus was literally God incarnate, the second person of the Holy Trinity living a human life so that the Christian religion was founded by God on earth in person, 
It is then very hard to escape from the traditional view that all mankind must be converted to the Christian faith. If it were true, he says, even though he didn't believe it is, if it were true that the Christian faith were founded by God on earth in person, then he said it would stand to reason. It would be logical that Jesus would be the the Savior of the world, that that, that the Christian faith would be, of course, the, the true religion, if you will, because it was founded by God in the flesh. I am a Christian because I believe that the Christian faith was founded by God on earth in person. Last week, we celebrated the creation, and we even celebrated Apollo 11. At the end of this service, when John Lemons came to the pulpit to do the closing prayer, He quoted from Jim Irwin, who was an Apollo 15 astronaut, who said, God walking on the earth is a lot more important than man walking on the moon. And I believe that God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became enfleshed in the person of Jesus. I believe the Christian faith was founded by God on earth in person. And so, I am a Christian. I'm a Christian because of incarnation. I'm a Christian also because of resurrection. Follow along on your outline, please, as I read again, this time from 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. If Christ has not been raised, Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Roman soldiers on a Friday morning marched Jesus through the streets of old Jerusalem bearing uh, the instrument of his own death, the cross. He bore it as long as he physically could carry it, and then they marched him uh, through the gates just outside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, where on a hill they crucified him, the most cruel form of death known uh, to the Romans. In fact, Uh, A death so horrific that they had to invent a word. I said this some years ago on a Palm Sunday. They had to invent a word for the pain. I I don't use it for my pains when I have them. The word excruciating. 
The word excruciating is a Latin, comes from the Latin ex, which means out of, and cruce, which means cross. It means that there was no agony uh, like that, so they had to invent a word. And after six hours of excruciating, the ground rumbled beneath them, the sky grew dark above them, and in arguably the most dramatic moment in human history, the Lord Jesus cried, it is finished, and he hung his head, and he died. Two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took his lifeless body from the cross, and they laid him in a nearby tomb that belonged to Joseph of Arimathea's family. They laid him on a cold slab. They rubbed into his increasingly clammy skin some burial ointment, and then they wrapped him a little bit like you and I imagine a mummy being wrapped. And when they left, they did what was customary with the tomb of somebody who, of means. They rolled a stone in front of it, and then they left, for there was nothing, there was nothing else to do. Now, the religious leaders uh, went to Pilate, and they said, uh, you know, there's this rumor going around that on the third day, Jesus might be alive again. In fact, he said that. And we know they must have added, they, know, they must have said, we know that's ridiculous. But it would be bad PR if maybe they were to break in and somebody break in and steal his body and then claim he was resurrected and Pilate agreed. And so he, he put a guard, which means probably not a guard, but a unit of 16 guards there. And uh, he put a seal, so a big wax seal that would have been half on the wall of the tomb and half on the stone so that if somebody came there and moved the stone to steal his body, it would break the seal and they would, they would say, well, you know, somebody messed with it and we've got the proof. They broke the seal. So they, he did the best he could do. He posted guards. He put the seal there. But what if he'd had, what, and just imagine with me that he'd had some technology, the kinds of technology that, that we have now. So what if he had a, um, what if he had a, a surveillance video camera on the body so that there were those guards instead of just hanging around outside the tomb had some screens you know we have out in the receptionist desk we have uh, screens where we can see everything that's going on in the building you didn't know that did you but we do we've got we can see everything going on and maybe what if they'd had that what if they could have watched the screen and what if they'd had uh, attached to his chest what if they'd had a heart monitor attached to his chest? What if they'd had electrodes attached to his brain to measure brain waves just as proof, mind you, that, that he wasn't coming back to life so that they could show people the reports later? No, he... Or if somebody broke in to steal his body, they would have the proof, the video proof. But imagine with me uh, on Sunday morning, the, you know, the soldiers have been up all night and they're kind of sleepy and there's a, there's a beep on the the heart monitor. The one listening must have thought it was a malfunction, but then there's a beep on the one that's monitoring his brain waves, and the one monitoring that must have thought that's a malfunction, has to be. But imagine the guy watching the surveillance camera, the, the screen, when this body that we imagine dressed kind of like a mummy uh, sat, sat up. 
Can you imagine his call to his supervisor? Sir, you're not going to believe this, but Jesus, he ain't dead no more. In the words of the late S.M. Lockridge, Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. And that changes everything. If it weren't for the resurrection, then religion would be like the buffet at the Golden Corral. You know, you, I'll take a little of this, and I'll take a little bit of that. Not so much of that. We could be like, I'll, you know, I'll take a little Oprah, I'll take a little Deepak Chopra, or I, you know, I'll take uh, old-time religion, I'll take the New Age religion. We could all just pick and choose. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and the resurrection added an exclamation point. I am a Christian not because Christians have done such good things. I'm a Christian because of incarnation, and I'm a Christian because of resurrection, and I'm a Christian third because of redemption. Follow again in your order of worship. From Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified, meaning it's just as, as if I'd never sinned, freely by His grace, His unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love through the redemption, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here again, these words from Romans 3, for all have sinned, all, have, all are cursed with what the Bible calls a sinful nature, which is an overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. And all are justified, just as if we'd never sinned, freely by His unconditional, undeserved, unlimited, unrelenting love through the redemption. Christian faith points to verses like these in Romans 3 and says two things. One, the Bible diagnoses that the deepest, most fundamental need of humankind. And that is our sinful nature, our overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing. And the Bible, the Christian faith points to these verses and says, two, what, the Bible not, not, not only diagnoses our most profound problem, but offers the only solution to that. And that is grace. And that is that, that God reached down to people who couldn't save ourselves, that we can't work our way out of our condition. That God reaches down in grace and offers redemption. The Greek word uh, redemption, apolytrosis, carries the image of liberation. In, in the Bible's day, in Paul's day, 
Now, the word apolytrosis or redemption was the word they used for the exodus. When the story, the story of the Jewish people who were enslaved by the oppressive pharaohs, when they escaped, you know, the story over the Red Sea through the wilderness, eventually to the promised land. The people of the Bible uh, in, in Jesus and Paul's day called that apolytrosis, redemption. And only a few decades ago in West Africa, when Bible translators were there, trying to translate the Bible into the Bambara language, they got to that word apolytrosis, translated redemption in the English Bible. And they couldn't find a corresponding word in Bambara. There just wasn't one word that would capture that. And then they began to reflect on stories they heard of the Bambara people and their ancestors who would be trapped in the, in the interior of Africa. They would be tied together with chains. They would put uh, uh, these shackles around their necks and march them in, in a single file from the interior of Africa to the shore, uh, to the beaches where the slave, trips were waiting, sh slave ships were waiting for them. And as they would march them, sometimes they would go near or through a village and someone would recognize someone in that awful procession. And if they had enough money or enough gold or something to trade, they could redeem them. They could pay enough for them, and they would, the slave owners then would take their, their heads out. And having heard those stories in the Bambara language, if you read it today, uh, in the new, their New Testament, when it comes to apolytrosis, it says, and he offers to take their heads out. So that redemption carries the idea of liberation, of being liberated from the power of sin over us so that we're no longer enslaved by sin, by the, that, 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 that redemption is, the, is freedom from the penalty of sin, so that we don't have to be separated by God forever because of our sin. The redemption, apolytrosis, carries the idea of our being liberated from our shame, from our regrets. Duke McCall was president of Southern uh, Seminary in Louisville, where I went. He, he was, had gone by the time I got there. But he came back to speak at graduation. And he was the first one I ever heard tell the story of the Parliament of Religions. This was uh, 1893, the World's Fair. You know, they used to have World's Fair. Maybe they still do. You, you know, the big Golden Dome in Knoxville where they hosted the World's Fair. Well, this was 1893 in Chicago. And as part of the World's Fair, they had a parliament, what they called a parliament of religion, so that people from all over the world came. And in those days, that was a rare thing to get people from various continents together. But the leaders of the world's leading religions got together to speak of the virtues, the values, the teachings of their religions. Various uh, world religion leaders spoke. And, and then it came... Time for the Christian presentation. Joseph Cook, who, who's, who, who was a Christian scholar whose specialty, by the way, was the, the, the idea that science and religion are not in conflict. But he was the one to represent the Christian faith. But instead of talking about science and religion, he told a story from a scene in the Shakespearean play Macbeth. In the play, Lady Macbeth, the queen had convinced her husband to murder his political rival. But Lady Macbeth is haunted by the deed that she's done. Haunted, her lament so great, her regret so deep that she was bordering on what we might call a nervous breakdown. She would sleepwalk often, wringing 
her hands that she believed were stained with blood. One of the, um, one of the servants, lady servants in the palace knew of this strange behavior of Lady Macbeth, told the physician about it. He wanted to see it for, him, for himself. So they waited up at night to see if Lady Macbeth might sleepwalk. In fact, she did. They were in the room when she came in, the, the servant again explaining to the doctor. She walks around sleepwalking, wringing her hands uh, as, if, as if she's trying to clean them. She walks into the room. The lady servant says to the doctor, listen. Actually, she said, hark, she speaks. And Lady Macbeth sleepwalking wringing her hands. Out, spot, out, she cried. Will these hands ne'er be clean? All the perfume in Arabia could not sweeten these little hands. And Joseph Cook turned to the representatives of the other religions, and he asked, what is there in your religion who will clean, that will clean Lady Macbeth's hands. And he's, he continued, if there's nothing to clean her hands, there's nothing in your religion worth mentioning. Now, I'm not an expert in the world's religions, and there may be other religions that speak of new beginnings and starting over, but this I know. The Christian faith is the long and beautiful story of the creator of the uni universe reaching down to redeem us from our, the penalty of our sin and the power of our sin and the and the lament, the regret of our sin. And I'm, it, it just has to be somebody who's watching us or in this room came to, he, came to this place or to the room where you're sitting, still wringing uh, your hands over lament, regret. I wish I had. I wish I hadn't. Forgive me for preaching, but all the perfume in Arabia will not sweeten your hands, but the blood of Jesus will. And I offer that to you, not in my own power, certainly, but as one who has my own regrets. In fact, my first, I think it was my first, may have been my, no, I think it was my second sermon here as interim because there's so many who knew me in college, my sermon was about the sins of my youth. I know, what it's, uh, I know what it's like. But I offer to you freedom, redemption. Why am I a Christian? Because with all my heart, I believe the Christian faith was founded by God on earth in person. I believe in incarnation. Why am I a Christian? I believe with all my heart that Jesus was as dead as the last person whose funeral you attended and who was then alive, as alive as you and I. And why, do I, why am I a Christian? Because I believe in redemption, the, the liberation from our regret, the liberation from the oppressive power, enslavement of sin, and liberation from the eternal punishment of sin. And I offer that to you in the name of the one I believe to be the Savior of the world.